Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges that the retail industry is facing. From fashion, beauty and homeware, myself, Grace Hill, will be chatting to leading experts in the industry to shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. So we're currently in a time where there is polarization globally on what consumers can and cannot do, whether They're in the height of, sadly, another lockdown or opening back up as we are here in the UK. The only constant is change. Therefore, today, we wanted to share insights from different parts of the world that are at different stages of their COVID journey, Australia and Poland. But firstly, Australia, a market which has been open longer than any other country, We wanted to share insights from this market to help equip retailers globally as they plan and prepare for life post-COVID. This region is unique in giving the world insight into how consumers are dressing post-pandemic without restrictions. On today's podcast, we have Kayla Marcy, market analyst here at Edited. Welcome back to Unedited, Kayla. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today. How is life down in, uh, well, maybe not so sunny Melbourne at the moment? How's it going? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's been surprising. Today has been such a beautiful day. There's still really, really great weather. You know, I, I feel like I'm just constantly rubbing it in. We're allowed to go out, go out to restaurants, go outdoors. And we also have beautiful weather. <laughs> Oh my God, what more could you ask for? Oh, Literally living the dream. No wonder you left London. <laughs> yeah, the weather was a big decider for me. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. So firstly, Kels, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and like your role at Edited? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the market analyst for Edited. So I sit on our analyst team and I believe that you had some recent guests on the analyst team on the podcast a few weeks ago as well. So I work with the lovely ladies such as Venetia and Avery, but I also work on the marketing team. So um, basically my role is to translate the data we have into the reports um, that our customers use, but also send it out into the world and ensure that some of the big publications like Business of Fashion, Vogue Business, Wall Street Journal and so on, seeing what Edited is doing. Amazing, amazing. I know you've created some incredible insights that many of you will have seen out there in the press and and in our insider briefing and, and blogs that you all have access to. But besides the kind of latest snap lockdowns across a few states in Australia, the country has kind of essentially been COVID free for a while now. And and for context for all of our listeners, Kayla is one of a few Aussies who works at Edited and was actually visiting Melbourne right before coronavirus hit. She got stuck there, but I don't think she was too unhappy about that. Eventually came back to London for a few months, but as she just mentioned, uh, the weather was a real deciding factor in her moving back to her homeland. But with your global perspective, Kayla, could you explain the situation in Australia compared to what's happening in the rest of the world? Sure. So I'm currently based in Melbourne. And as I mentioned, things are pretty much back to normal. And that was a huge shock for me coming out of my two week quarantine that I could actually go into a restaurant inside of a restaurant and eat. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> which I don't believe you guys have had the luxury yet. But yeah, it was a, amazing to see, you know, we're all attending weddings. Um, we're able to go into shopping centers maskless. Currently, the only place we are required to wear a mask is on public transport, which is is pretty fantastic. But as a global perspective, Australia really hasn't had as many cases as the US and the UK. We've had under about 30,000 to date. Yet in some areas such as Victoria, where I'm based, there have been some pretty dramatic steps taken in order to get to this point. Just before I left a year ago to return to the UK, I actually just missed out on Melbourne's over 100-day lockdown. So that was, you know, pretty good timing on my behalf. And as you can imagine, that has been so challenging for retailers. However, looking back now, it certainly has paid off, you know, because while we can't travel internationally, we are operating as normal as possible. And then retail from that has bounced back. And I think that that has just put Australia in such an interesting position, especially from the perspective of Northern Hemisphere retailers. You know, you have parts in Europe where consumers are still living under these strict lockdowns and they haven't been able to return to their normal way of life or you have in the UK, things are slowly, slowly opening up. And I think that has really flipped the script. Australia has always been a season behind the Northern Hemisphere. So, you know, coming from working in retail in Australia, we always look to the US, the UK, Europe for trend inspiration. And now with these harsh lockdowns, retailers are looking to Australia to see how we're navigating this new normal and what consumers are really wearing and and buying post-lockdown. I guess that's what's so interesting, right? That you have the opportunity with data and insights into different geographical regions who are at completely different stages in their coronavirus cycle to understand what is happening, how are consumers responding, how is that impacting retail to be able to get those insights to kind of influence and take action within your own business, depending on where you're at. I'm I'm just really curious to know as well, Kales, obviously you mentioned you can go into shopping centres maskless. Mm -hmm. I know in the UK, obviously we're still having to wear masks on public transport and in, you know, inside space. Have you found that consumers are still wanting to wear masks or is everyone seeming to be pretty happy? You know, just the majority seem to be kind of maskless and or I guess living, you know, their life and, and shopping um, as if we'd never had that coronavirus period of having to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. I think generally you'll find in all regions around the world, you'll have the people who are very resistant to wear masks. Australia is no exception. So I think it was quite a relief when the masks could come off. At the moment, they're only allowed on public transport. I'm sorry, the only place you would wear them is on public transport, but you still see people who aren't wearing them. So I definitely think it was a huge relief for Australian consumers and definitely something that helped drive Australian retail to where it is at the moment because it is in a really good recovery position. You know, we're seeing consumer confidence is surging. There's been a boost in employment. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, March sales for clothing and footwear and personal accessories have risen. It's up 1.4% month on month. And and turnover 2.3% year on year. Wow, that's really exciting to see that sector kind of returning to growth and, and positive, <laughs> positive numbers. Nice to see always. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing that I have to ask is how was a two week lockdown in a hotel? Because you're um, one of those people that has had 
you know, the pleasure of experiencing that. (laughs) Yes. So that was quite hard. I'm very happy that I had my work to keep me occupied. So of course I was still working for Edited while I was over. There was no way I was taking leave while I'm stuck in a hotel. (laughs) What I didn't realize was how strict they were on alcohol consumption. (laughs) Um, So my partner sent me about, I don't know, six or a dozen bottles of wine to my hotel room for me to enjoy over quarantine, but I was only allowed to have one a day. So they like tried to ration me out. (laughs) (laughs) So they were just kind of like drip feeding you these uh, bottles of wine. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So every day I had to like call and be like, oh, I've, you know, I'm ready for my next bottle now. Please send it (laughs) out. room service literally <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty much um yeah so I was very lucky to have that and constant testing I was tested every five days or so so it was you know it was very hard but I understand you know why it needs to be done and but I was very glad it was over and especially coming from London I, I couldn't believe that as soon as I I could leave I could go straight into a pub and indoors of the pub and wow yeah it was it was just so quite bizarre so foreign. And even then I was still quite, you know, I was masking up and I was worried about getting too close to people because I was just so used to being in the UK where you have to be very careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also had to show a negative test to get on the plane. So in the lead up to it, I was being so, so careful. But just over here, you know, you just don't have to be. Wow. I can't wait for that moment. That will be very oh, It's coming, Grace. It's coming. <laughs> So you've already mentioned that the Southern Hemisphere has usually played catch up in terms of seasons. And I know that you have that unique experience of where you worked in buying yourself in Australia, but have also had the experience of of working in the UK and in the Northern Hemisphere and having that perspective. How have retailers historically analysed Australia as a region and how has that now changed? Yeah, I think there has been a whole complete transformation with the processes between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. I mean, traditionally being that season behind, Aussie retailers had a bit more of a luxury where they could watch their aspirational (laughs) markets for trend inspiration like the UK. And then they would have that six to 18 months or so to interpret what they learnt from maybe a buying trip and then develop that into the more successful trends. But we know that processes obviously don't work that way anymore and they haven't. You know, we have social media and online shopping. Consumers can easily see what's trending on the other side of the world. And, you know, they want it now. They want it yesterday. You know, if we were to stick to these traditional processes, by the time Time these hottest trends got to Australia, it, it's missed the window. Consumers are on to the next biggest thing. Mm-hmm. So that was a really big shift, especially for Australian retailers selling to Australian consumers, trying to stay relevant against these international retailers who were shipping to Australia and starting to steal some of that market share. But then on the other side of the coin, we've seen over the years just so many international brands just recognise the opportunity that there is in the Australian market. There was a huge influx at one stage of the Zara's, the Uniqlo's, the Top Shops, H&M's all opening up and it was complete chaos. We had like lines around the street to get into a H&M, like pre-pandemic, could wow. you imagine? a line to get into a H&M but that was what it was because we never had this and you know I don't want to show my age but I worked at I think the second Zara store to open up in Australia 
and we were constantly just being stripped of our inventory like people were just taking everything there was, it was so, it's madness it was so new to them but that doesn't mean that you know just because it's international that all brands can succeed in the Australian market you know I think long before the Arcadia brands were separated over in the UK this year we had you know ASOS and Boohoo buy up buy up those brands um, you know before all that Topshop had closed its Australian stores and it wasn't as much of a, a success as its other fast fashion competitors you know so I really think the international retailers who have managed to make it work aren't offering Australia's a completely different collection as to what they can see online and what they can see on social media. Of course, it does need to have some nuances, but not so completely different that, you know, we can kind of clock if it's, you know, what didn't work for the UK summer that they're just giving it to Australia. <laughs> yeah, she did all their dead stock. They didn't. All their dead stock. Don't give it to us. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a really great example is, you know, the Zara dress of 2019. It feels like a lifetime ago now. Infamous polka dot dress that you'd see like seven people on the same tube wearing. It's like playing bingo. You could just go. Yeah, I I remember my mum visiting from Australia and I was telling her about this dress and we went to Paddington Station and she was tapping me like, it's the dress, it's the dress. So in Australia, that dress actually arrived first in black with white polka dots. And then about a month later, it came in the white one that we all know. And I think this was a really interesting and quite a clever move, especially, you know, being a Melbourneian, our style is synonymous with wearing all black. So I think that that was really something that was quite clever to do, you know, giving us the same products, but slightly switching it up. So it resonates our market. You know, there's this big conception that Australia, we're all beach and desert and, you know, as, as we were saying before, I live in Melbourne, but we, you know, we had a beautiful sunny day today, whereas a few weeks ago it was raining and we're notorious for having four seasons in one day. So I think something that brick and mortar retailers selling to these different states really need to understand the climate. So they're allocating the right stock to the right store. I think that's a really important point to note. I think like, even though I've been lucky enough to visit Australia, my gran is Australian, It still boggles my brain (laughs) that actually it isn't all super hot, 30 plus degrees and sunny in all parts of Australia all at the same time. And that actually Melbourne's climate is very different to that of Perth or, you know, the kind of Gold Coast, for example. So I think it's really important that retailers are cognizant of that and they don't just, it's not just an entire one size fits all because Australia is a huge country with varying climates. For Um, sure. And yeah, a blanket assortment isn't really going to cut it with the Australian consumer. And, you know, that was something that we learned when I used to work in footwear buying and product development for an Australian company. And we would have, when we were delivering our boots for the fall winter season, we would still be ensuring that our Queensland stores were well stocked up with sandals because Mm. they get to the same kind of climates as our Melbourne or our Sydney stores and then you have you know if you're you know working kids wearing school wear you want to make sure that you're promoting hats all year round because as some Australians might know we have this saying no hat no play means you can't go outside and play unless you've got a hat on. Oh my god I love that. So Kales from your unique experience and insight you mentioned obviously that Topshop actually closed its Australian stores before the events of the past year with Arcadia going into administration and selling off its different brands. Why do you feel like that brand struggled and, and ended up closing its stores in that region? 
Yeah, I mean, it the time that it 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 entered the Australian market, it was a time when we had just Zara, we had H&M coming, you know, and not to mention that Australia already has its own set of low-priced, trend-driven brands. So I think, again, it was up against a lot of competition and maybe for similar reasons, it didn't work in the UK. It really needed to have some point of differentiation mm. against that. So, you know, the same reason that it, it, it is struggling and why the Oxford Street store closed is, is could have been maybe foreshadowed by its closure within the Maya stores in Australia, within the Chapel Street stores. It was its just eventual demise. But it is, you know, the Australian market is is very crowded. We There was the stage when, I, as I mentioned, all the international designers were coming, international mm-hmm. brands were coming in all at once. And then already from that, we have a very, you know, stable selection of, of brands already. We have the country roads of the world, the brands that are sitting under the Just Group. So we already have our own, you know, versions of that brand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's really interesting because I actually had a conversation in the past couple of weeks with an ex-Arcadia employee who actually managed the Australian stores and she spoke about how she would have a constant battle being the middleman between the insights that the Australian stores were sharing with her you know being on the ground what's selling what isn't and then having to communicate that back to head office in London and actually trying to kind of demonstrate that they couldn't send the exact product that was in the Topshop store to those stores because the customer needs a different type of product it needs almost like exclusives that are relevant to that market based on seasonality and and consumer preference as well and you know she had to use a lot of data to back up the fact that it was actually going to be a commercially viable model for them to do so so maybe that's an interesting uh, (laughs) part of uh, of why that brand struggled in that market but I know we've um, obviously a lot of northern hemisphere brands have really been looking to Australia and the Southern Hemisphere in, you know, the past year. What do you think we've learned from this market? And are there any big categories or trends that have trickled out of Australia that countries like the US and the UK have adapted or could adapt moving forward as we go into our spring summer season? For sure. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, we already have a a very established selection of, I guess, big box retailers, you could call them. And then also these, you know, this amazing talent of local designers who are really focusing on craftsmanship and building their own unique identity. But I guess in terms of fast fashion trends, it's always been interpreted from the Northern Hemisphere. But I think what's really interesting is we're starting to see over the past few years, this new wave of kind of, you know, cool girl brands that are mm-hmm. born from southern hemisphere and born from australia and they're starting to influence these you know the fast fashion behemoths on the other side of the pond you know a few years ago it was all about the realization par alexandra you remember i do have one the (laughs) the little stars that everybody was wearing madison beer kylie jenner was wearing it and then the the cheetah print skirt i think it was called the naomi skirt Mm -hmm. Um, and then now it's the, with Jean or with Jean, the Andy dress that's the long sleeved ruching, really, really short, that we're starting to see interpretations from uh, Pretty Little Thing and Sheehan. So whereas traditionally before Australia was viewed as a market for opportunity and international brands could expand into it, it's definitely becoming more part of the conversation and influencing global trends. 
And given that it has been relatively COVID-free for some months, Northern Hemispheres can really get some pretty solid insights into examining what's working and where retail is going. You know, I'm sure it's a question on a lot of retailers' minds, what's happening with loungewear, what's happening with partywear. So this is an example of a a region that has been, you know, COVID-free and they've been able to pick up kind of the pieces of their lives and enjoy the freedoms that we used to take for granted. Yeah, like that's such an amazing point, right? Like you guys have been able to <laughs> weddings for, you know, a decent amount of time at this point. And also to know, I think you told me this the other day, with no cap on numbers, right? It might be, but I think it's quite loose. Like it's in the hundreds. So it's oh, a good okay. You can have a decent wedding, you know. <laughs> pretty substantial wedding with over 100 people at least. I mean I'm not sure of the exact numbers I'm not planning a wedding anytime (laughs) (laughs) maybe your partner can hear you chatting about it it's very entertaining but I do feel like for especially UK and US brands obviously we have wedding season coming up and I know that a lot of friends who work in retail who work on dresses categories specifically Mm -hmm. it's that constant conversation of what do people want to wear what are people going to be wearing for occasions and Australia is the perfect market to to study right like as you said with Instagram and consumer trends the appetite is kind of globalized and help dictate your future assortments and what you come back with confidence um, sure I guess yeah I agree and I it's so interesting and I think you know you mentioned on the last podcast with Venetia and Avery talking about loungewear has become more of a staple like it's not going anywhere but it's not yeah. seen tremendous growth and Australia we've definitely seen this as well so we're still seeing interest loungewear and sleepwear we saw new sellouts this year um, from the start of this year up 12% year on year and then active where of course continues to go from strength to strength it's up 6% year on year so it's not huge numbers but it's still showing that there is some interest and that the trend isn't going away anytime soon they've almost reached like an evergreen evergreen status you know they're now as as part of your wardrobe as you know skinny jeans once were they've reached that kind of pinnacle but where there is growth is in these categories that were neglected over 2020 mm-hmm. so denim for example full price sellouts across men's and women's wear increased 65 percent in Australia year wow. on year so you know denim suppliers are looking forward to a much more fruitful year if Australia is anything to go by and I know that we've seen a lot of patchwork and a lot of more relaxed styles in the UK and US as well you know as you mentioned party wear is seeing a rebound sellouts in Australia surged 198 percent year on year and then heels 183 percent so that's all indicative of a, a complete swing away from the dreaded c word as in comfort <laughs> into party wear um you know but of course comfort will still be embedded in everyday lives and what I also think is another interesting area is swimwear last year it was kind of a bit of a problem child with Mm. medication cancelled you know now if we look at Australia over their summer which runs December February new sellouts saw an increase of 113 percent and so that's something we can perhaps expect to be reflected within markets such as the UK, especially as we just announced that you can travel to Spain on your COVID passport if you present a negative test or proof of vaccination. Yeah, it's a challenging year because a lot of retailers are going into this spring summer season relatively blind because they don't have last year's sales or last year's performance to 
to back up their decision making and their seasonal planning. You know, the typical summer categories were kind of flipped on their head. No one was buying skim. No one was buying dresses. So they don't have that history to fall back on, you know, help them understand what consumers are gravitating towards. And I know Australia has always had that swimwear you know, kind of mecha status in the sense that like that is the market to to really focus on to understand what are the kind of upcoming trends within that category. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. And even it's it's kind of challenging because that that data is so skewed. So you kind of don't know what to look at. Like if you look at 2019 data, you know, so much has changed since then. So yeah. it is, you know, I understand that retailers would be struggling as to where to look, which is why it's so great when you have tools like edited that can give you that global market view and you can kind of gain insight into these regions that have, you know, in some sense overcome COVID and are moving forward. Totally. And I guess in terms of, you know, talking about how things have changed so much since 2019, which is when we probably had our, you know, our last consistent retail data for retailers to be able to analyze internally, we've done kind of a 180 turn, I guess, in the sense of, you know, sexy dressing is a big topic. One of the most talked about topics from the pandemic was how the fashion calendar has kind of had the unique opportunity to reset itself since the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere are now flipped and we're seeing Southern Hemisphere actually ahead of us in terms of trend and calendar. Have we seen that actually happen? Yeah, I think it was a huge topic of conversation, especially within luxury brands, but it has kind of sort of fizzled out. Last year, we saw brands like Dries van Noten and Gucci trying to inspire systemic change to rewire the fashion calendar. So products would land closer to season and really optimize selling times and then eradicate the need for the constant discounts or huge discount events like Black Friday, you know, just have promotions twice a year to clear out what was left. And then this would protect their margins and minimize dead stock. But, you know, from a luxury standpoint, there really hasn't been that many shifts. Though shows are now mainly digital, the runway is still pretty much going ahead as per usual. We're just missing a couple of big names from the regular circuit who are showing off calendar. We recently had Gucci's Aria collection, which was fantastic. That little anatomical heart-shaped bag was was just amazing. Um, And then Burberry as well with their femininity collection off the traditional calendar. But, you know, the fashion industry's processes have been in place for so long, so it would really take more than a year more than 24 months to actually see some change. And I kind of think, you know, from an environmental perspective, where a rewire really needs to happen is not within luxury, but within fast fashion. That would, of course, take some serious coordination from brands to all align their product drops and discounting patterns, you know, which, of course, we haven't been seeing at all. When COVID first broke out, the fast fashion industry did have its much needed slowdown, but now it's more or less back to normal with constant product drops. So, you know, I I really don't see much of a change at all in terms of all this talk we had at the the start of last year about resetting the fashion calendar for the greater good. Yeah, I think sadly as well for many retailers, right, that they're trying to survive, you know, commercially and 
doing what they know best, which is delivering as much trend as quickly as possible and, and, and as much as possible, sadly. And, and I think there's also that that scary stat, which I was, again, just reminding myself of yesterday, is that kind of the global fashion apparel industry contributes 10% of all global carbon emissions, which is is quite staggering, really, to think this one industry has such an Mm -hmm. impact. But even though, you know, many and most of the fashion shows were cancelled in the past year, or they were postponed, or they were moved to a digital format, we saw some really exciting and innovative initiatives and and, and methods. We were told that the industry could reduce its huge carbon footprint. But apparently, actually, traveling for buying trips and fashion weeks hasn't actually had a huge positive impact on the environment either. And, you know, we knowing Gen Z's conscious mindset, how do you think the Aussie Gen Z's will react to this? Yeah, I think that's what's been quite a shock. You know, we were all kind of hoping something good would come out of out of COVID, especially for the environment, you know, with production slowing down in serious carbon emitting countries, you know, beaches aren't as crowded, we're not traveling as much. However, in the grand scheme of things, there really hasn't been that much of an impact. I was actually really quite shocked to to discover that the World Meteorological Organization said the effect of lockdowns on CO2 in the atmosphere was so small that it is just registered as a blip. So it's, you know, definitely not a time for retailers or consumers to be Mm. complacent and think that COVID has managed to, you know, buy them some time or stall negative environmental impacts because, as you said, it really hasn't. I think mentioning the Aussie Gen Zer is really interesting. There was this McKinsey study that revealed Mm. all of the APAC regions, Australia was the only one where Gen Zers said that they'd pay more for sustainable goods Um, and it was a greater proportion than compared to other generations. So it was 39% of Gen Z versus 28% of millennials and then 16% of Gen Xs. So here we have a consumer group that is actually dedicated to change and, and willing to pay more for it, which has always kind of been the, I guess, the kind of been the struggle hasn't it for for retailers how do you price that assortment Um, absolutely and there's it's always been kind of the the struggle yeah with with gen z as well because they're kind of given this status as the generation that's going to change everything but they're still buying fast fashion hauls they're still you know adding to this problem but they're the ones who are the face and the front of of climate change but i think it's encouraging though that you know, it's it's sad that there aren't actually more regions within APAC where, you know, that demographic would pay more. But the fact that within Australia, that that is something that is, you know, a worthy, a worthy cause that's yeah. worth paying for. But it would be good to get your understanding as to why do you think, you know, what are the factors that have contributed to this? And do you think that there's a link between you know, the Gen Z's willing to pay more and potentially the climate impact that we've seen in the region with bushfire season, for example. You know, I think bushfires is certainly a contributing factor. I mean, growing up in Australia, it's a common occurrence and it's one that you you kind of, you know, it's always going on. But just the one that occurred at the end of 2019 and led into 2020, combined with how the Australian government handled it with our prime minister going on holidays to Hawaii while the country's burning, I think that really accelerated the urgency of the climate crisis for Australians of all ages, but particularly the Gen Zs, you know, they're the ones who have to live with it. They're the ones who are fighting for their future. You know, despite this, I would say that 
Australia is shockingly behind in terms of sustainability efforts, especially for such a wealthy and developed country, mm. because it's usually the more, you know, wealthy countries who are able to implement change through, you know, the infrastructure. But there still are a lot of funds that are going into capturing and storage of emissions from fossil fuels. And then at the recent climate summit, it was very clear that Australia isn't amb- as ambitious with their climate goals compared to other countries like the US. Australia announced that by 2030, its aim was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% in comparison to 2005 levels. And that's actually about half the size of what Biden proposed to do in the US. They're aiming for about 50 to 52%. And so I think it all kind of comes down to the very conservative, maybe a bit bumbling leadership that we do have in this country. Right. Well, we can we understand your political <laughs> views from those comments, scales. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I can speak for many of us who are surprised by countries like the US and the UK who've done actually a phenomenal and job in widely distributing the vaccine. However, you know, from reading the news, it's been reported that Australia's vaccine rollout has been slower than most, you know, with the BBC reporting it's fallen short of its goal. Do you think that Australia's vaccination efforts could impact its place right now as the current go-to fashion market? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, while Australian retail is in a great place, it could all see a backward slide due to its sluggish position in the vaccine race. You know, the climate is just so volatile. It's been one year on from the initial outbreak, but we're still seeing regions in their third lockdown. You know, you just don't really know what's going to happen. And Australia, while it's managed to avoid a third lockdown, you know, sometimes the winter, if that's you know, the pattern that we're seeing is sometimes the winter hits harder. So, you know, there's no guarantee and it really makes it all the more important for global retailers to be monitoring the markets that are doing well, that aren't doing as well, and then really reacting while they can. Totally. Yeah. I think that's the thing you've got to, it could so quickly change, right? As we've seen. Yeah. And and even in Australia, you know, when we had just a snap lockdown because of, you know, there was one case and, you know, one person was detected with COVID in Perth and because they moved around the city, suddenly it was all locked down again. So you just really don't know what's going to happen and it kind of puts us in a strange position that we can't quite fight it as we're not as vaccinated as the rest of the world. So it is a bit worrying. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think, uh, fingers crossed, (laughs) your government that you think so highly of, hopefully they can... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> get those vaccines rolled out ASA. Uh, no, maybe it wasn't a good idea to leave the UK after all. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be coming up soon for your vaccine, Kales. Exactly. So we've discussed Australia in, in depth. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to switch gears now and discuss a place that has, you know, maybe had less mainstream coverage, but it's becoming a very important market to look at and a number of a number of our customers at Edited are extremely interested in this region and this country in particular. And also, I have to say, you have a, again, a very interesting experience in the sense that you are half Polish and you've spent a lot of time living in that region as well. So I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about Australia and Poland or kind of Central and Eastern Europe, I guess. But could you firstly educate our audience on the Polish consumer profile? Yes, um, definitely. Uh, two regions uh, after my own heart here, Grace. Um, 
I think, you know, why so many consumers are interested in Poland is it's, you know, a region that's certainly showing a lot of promise. You know, it's poised to be the EU's most resilient economy in terms of COVID recovery. And the economy is expected to grow 3% by the end of 2021. And that'll make it the only EU member to return to pre-pandemic levels. You know, this is, of course, all pending the impact of Europe's third wave. You know, in terms of the consumer, they are more traditional. Digital transactions and online shopping are on the rise, but there is still more of a preference for shopping in store. They're also very price sensitive, and I think that's quite a common attribute among Eastern European consumers. Statista reported 73% of Poles expect value for money from their fashion purchases, and this is a value that they place higher than, you know, buying the hottest trends or products with a low environmental impact. You know, and then you have on top of that, one third of Poles noted a drop in income during the pandemic. So that'll make them even more conscious about price. Editor data can really back this up, this price sensitivity by, you know, analyzing the products selling out in the mass market in Poland versus a region like the UK. We're seeing the categories that are experiencing the highest sellout are more likely to house those entry level, more purse friendly price points, such as your accessories or hosiery, as seeing a greater proportion of sellouts than in a region like the UK. UK. And then if you dive in deeper to that, the majority of, you know, sunglasses, for example, that sold out in the UK, we saw the advertised price point was between 15 to 20 20 pounds. I've got to think what currency I'm in at the moment since I'm (laughs) across so many regions. 15 to 20 pounds was the price point, whereas in Poland, the sweet spot is under 15 pounds, which kind of translates to about 78 Polish swati. So it's really understandable that retailers are finding this such a market of interest right now, but also especially their consumers. I mean, traditional consumer who only wants to or mainly wants to shop in store kind of gives insight into an older consumer. However, there are many you know, younger customers who would have left Poland in order to travel or find work with better wages. They're starting to all come home due to, you know, Brexit or, you know, COVID. And then there's that Gen Z consumer who's restricted from travel. So there is an opportunity for these local and international brands to really create a narrative with the younger consumer as well. Absolutely. I feel like that's really interesting insight that you've kind of almost got this combination and this melting pot of, of different profiles and, and tastes and preferences. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you know, LPP is one of Eastern Europe's biggest retail groups. And according to its deputy chief executive, he did an interview and said, Eastern markets are different. Customers prefer traditional ways of shopping. So we will simply open more stores there, (laughs) which is an interesting comment, you know, considering the boom of of e-commerce and everything that everyone in retail has been discussing in previous years. Firstly, what countries are even defined as Central and Eastern Europe? Kayla, I know we've gone back and forth on this. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like you'd be better to answer this, Grace. You know, you're a uh, geographer. I can't even say the word. You're a geography buff, whereas (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) So, you know, I was was preparing for an article and I literally was Googling what is Eastern Europe countries because there are so many different results. I know if you talk to some, you know, some Polish people, they will say very firmly that they are Central Europe, not Eastern Europe. However, you know, different search results might give you, you know, different things. Britannica and Wikipedia certainly define countries like Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary as Central Europe. And then, you know, Russia, Romania, Greece, Georgia, Belarus, Armenia are actually Eastern Europe. But then you have, you know, UN Statistics Division, 
Poland and Eastern Europe and a lot of travel websites as well. You know, so to keep it simple, for an article that I was writing, we used this term Central and Eastern European countries, which is CWCs. So that's kind of a bit more all-encompassing for countries. It covers Central Europe, the Baltics, Eastern Europe, Southeast Europe and the Balkans. So usually a lot of former communist states. So that was how how we defined it. But there are certainly different ways that you can cut it. And it a lot of it does depend on, you know, geography and some of it depends on religion too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And why do kind of Central or Eastern European consumers or in particular Polish consumers prefer traditional ways of shopping as per the LPP's Deputy Chief Exec's comments? Yeah, well, I mean... As we said, it's a, it's very traditional and it, it really is that in every sense of the word as, as from someone who has spent some time there. Um, you know, it's super conservative, very religious. It has about an 87% Roman Catholic population. And I think that's, you know, it's a super high number. And I, I think that was really brought to the attention of the world on social media, you know, with the women's marches this year and last year, the Strakobiet. So a region that would be, seem to be very set in its ways would be more you know, kind of reluctant to change, I feel, you know, but I don't think it's going to to be that way forever. I mean, there are a lot of signs that are indicating that these Central and Eastern European countries are adapting and evolving to online shopping, just maybe at a slower rate than what we're used to. And how do you think kind of COVID will have impacted that, you know, in the sense that they too have experienced lockdowns and non-essential retail having to shut its doors. Yeah, I, I found this really interesting. There was a study by PwC mm. and said over the course of the pandemic, 33% of Poles mainly shopped online for footwear, accessories and clothing and so on, while 43% shopped in stores. So even despite a pandemic, you still have consumers prioritising in-store over online you know, but I also think what is really quite interesting is, as I said before, I don't think this will stay the same way forever. And there have been some notable shifts, you know, despite this fondness for, for traditional methods of shopping and the drop in wages, a third of Poles are actually shopping online more than previously. And if you look at other Central Eastern European countries like uh, the Czech Republic, they're ranked as some of the most frequent and avid shoppers. And you have 80% of internet users purchasing goods and services online. And that puts them ahead of other, you know, their neighbours like Hungary, where it's 70% and Slovakia, 68%. And then other regions, you have Bulgaria, Romania, they have less than 50% of internet users shopping online. However, these markets have seen the largest increase over the past five years. You know, so as I mentioned, it has been a reluctant shift. It's definitely starting to evolve. So, you know, retailers who are tapping into this market, the omni-channel approach is really the best way to go because we can start to see the shift towards e-commerce, but they are still a preference for in-store. So covering all bases is definitely the savviest thing to do. And, you know, a great example is Zalando. You know, they added Poland to its Connect Retail program. Mm. So that allows local brick-and-mortar businesses to sink their stock and then sell that via Zalando's online platform. So really getting the best of both worlds there. Very clever. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that we're seeing the growth of e-commerce, but potentially that was out of necessity and that the preference is, is 
still with traditional. And it's actually, as you said, the omni-channel approach is the way to go. And that Zalando is is somebody to, to be looking to as to how they're navigating that market. In the same Reuters article that the LPP chief exec made the comments, they mentioned the LPP's push to open more stores comes after big Western brands are shutting down their stores, actually, in Eastern and Central Europe, after kind of originally flocking there um, to the region and kind of the year 2000 to take advantage of rising incomes and fast economic growth. Why is it that these big Western brands are shrinking their presence? Yeah, I think, you know, COVID is definitely a factor there. We've seen brick and mortar retailers all around the world be impacted as they were forced to permanently close stores, you know, even after lockdowns lifted as the operating costs for maintaining a store that no one has gone into for six to 12 months is just simply too high. But even before COVID, you know, brands were evolving on their e-commerce strategies and leaning more in favour of e-commerce, as you said, due to convenience. So we've just seen that accelerate and you know, I think in the last podcast, Venetia made an excellent point that stores today need to have a purpose. You know, they need to have some sort of excitement for consumers. And we'll see these big brands shuttering stores in smaller regions of the world or their smaller stores to really concentrate on e-commerce or, you know, reinventing their flagship. So there's something that consumers will want to visit even after the novelty of going back into store post-lockdown has kind of dissolved. So, you know, I think it's this has created an opportunity for local brands, you know, such as the LPP group to really cater to their consumers, but also for new entrants who may want to test the water in these emerging European regions without having that pressure of your big H&M and your Zara, et cetera. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah really interesting and and insightful advice so we know and again some of our listeners might be surprised to to know this you know maybe not being as familiar with the region that face masks were already a staple accessory for the Polish consumer so did Poland kickstart pandemic dressing before the pandemic even happened (laughs) no but you know not quite I guess but yeah face masks in Poland have dated to pre-pandemic times as an essential in retailers' assortment. It has shockingly high smog levels. 33 out of the 50 most polluted cities are in Poland. And it has some of the worst air quality in Europe. You know, and this is because it's a poor country. A lot of homes don't have the adequate heating, so they burn low-quality fuels like wood or sometimes even rubbish just to stay warm. And then you have, you know, the country has a huge reliance on the coal industry and that emits this kind of dusty smog um, that's really quite prominent even in, you know, the more developed cities Mm -hmm. like such as of, which, you know, to be honest, I'm I'm an asthmatic and I didn't quite notice that much until I left Poland and then I could constantly smell it in my hair. And it's it's something that you'll see in winter, people everywhere will be wearing these anti-dust and anti-pollution masks. However, it is a year-round problem and the smog is just as bad during the summer days as it is in the winter. But I really love pandemic dressing before the pandemic in Central Eastern European countries. You know, something that I found super interesting is if we we move focus to Ukraine. At a conference with Vogue, I attended to, you know, in the in the pre-pandemic days when you could travel, I noticed, uh, I know it feels like a lifetime ago, um, <laughs> I noticed a lot of women wearing the, the pyjama dressing trend and, and really championing that there at this conference. And 
heels, very oversized shirts, wide leg pants of these really luxurious silky fabrics. And um, one of the women who was based in Kiev had this beautiful buttery neutral set and I instantly asked her where it was from and Googled it because I wanted to embody that look. And, you know, I <laughs> it's from a brand called 12 Stories, which is a Russian brand if anybody okay. is interested, <laughs> on some lovely pyjama no. dresses. Um, and you know this was like 2019 so there was this big 90s nostalgic rush and Mm. you know everything was denim and a bit grungy that kind of trend had kicked off and um you know she said to me that that nostalgic look wasn't really popular in Ukraine as they associate denim very much with you know Russians where it was synonymous denim was synonymous with their youth culture especially heritage American brands like Levi's which were very hard to come by and almost a sign of rebellion among young people during the Soviet Union so you know due to the political conflicts between Russia and the Ukraine that are still going on today she said denim and this kind of nostalgic way of dressing is 90 or Y2K dressing wasn't as revered in Ukraine as it would be in other countries. So it's really interesting. You have many things influencing fashion, you know, outside of, you know, the Kardashians or outside of supermodels. You have, you know, things like the pandemic and then you have your environmental influences and geopolitical factors as well. It's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when you're, you're sat in, in your home country, you kind of you know, we know how important denim as a category is in the Western world. And, you know, you can make assumptions about consumer preferences in different regions. And it just shows the geopolitical, as you said, influence and cultural influence it can have on, on fashion trends. So it's very important to know your market and understand that consumer in depth. So for retailers looking to enter this market, What are some of the categories that are performing well that new entrants can really take advantage of? Yeah, I think in terms of like trends associated with a lot of Central Eastern European countries, there's this kind of automatic association of this post-Soviet style of dressing that was really popular. Remember back in the Vudemont's heyday when there were designers like uh, Gosha Robchininsky really entering the mainstream. Again, that very 90s nostalgic, the matching tracksuit sets, streetwear with Cyrillic slogans, the high-low style of mixing sports were in luxury. This aesthetic still kind of crops up with Gen Z today, but there are many more Central Eastern European designers that are finding mainstream success. You know, you've got Anton Belinsky, Shylak, which is a Polish leather goods brand that make beautiful leather accessories and handbags, and Kutasaka, Nanushka. And these designers are kind of evolving this post-Soviet look to become almost the post-Soviet look and that still has these streetwear roots but includes elements of refinement and avant-garde and sustainability. So it's kind of taking it beyond the working-class Gopnik subculture it's called which has now almost become a meme and a stereotype associated with these regions so almost like the eastern european equivalent of of a chaz to put it in uk terms but you know in 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 poland sports and activewear definitely stand out as a key category Mm -hmm. especially within the gen z market this demographic they're spending on sporting products and services saw a 40 percent increase last year and then looking in edge, we could see sneakers as the top selling item for women in this area, while for men, it's performance tops. And then, you know, we could see despite the lockdown that they had over Easter, 
there wasn't really that return to your pandemic dressing of loungewear. Blouses equaled 27% of tops selling out in Poland, while hoodies and sweatshirts were less than 3%. And then dresses were the second top moving category in this market with summer floral styles seeing success. So that kind of taps into that dopamine dressing phenomenon that we've we've mentioned before. So it is, like you mentioned, a whole melting pot of trends. So mm-hmm. um, having this kind of data to understand what consumers are buying is definitely advantageous. Absolutely. I think on the kind of dopamine dressing point as well, I know you and I were going back and forth over Reserved's recent campaign around kind of designed by Gen Z Poland and they've created this like very 90s noughties kind of like website that is the lookbook for the collection and there was this bright yellow ruffled you know top and trouser set which uh, really spoke to that look and that trend which I could see you in Kales I could see that very well (laughs) I I love that and I just thought that was something really cool to do because you know Gen Z's are the ultimate influencers Mm -hmm. and you know, we see so many other regions of the world, you know, French fashion, very influential. You have your your Scandi style that's well known around the world. So I just really love that that kind of spoke to, you know, what is Polish style. Totally. Kels, we always ask our guests this question and you're not going to be any different. So what is the one thing you would love our listeners to take away from this episode? Definitely arm yourself with data when tapping into any new region. Again, the great thing about Edited is you have the opportunity to do so. You can understand where there are gaps in the market, where there's opportunities in your products and your pricing and so on, because, you know, really entering new turf is is easier said than done. Retailers definitely need to educate themselves on, you know, geopolitical climates, currency complexities, cultural differences, really get to grips with the appropriate times to run sales events, you know, for example, and avoid any cultural faux pas, you know, back on Australia, you know, January 26 is a highly controversial date. It's called Australia Day, but it marks the British colonisation. So it's actually a day of mourning for our First Nation citizens. So, you know, retailers really shouldn't be capitalising on this date to promote their half price sales. So, you know, definitely having an understanding of that region and then the data to back up your decisions. I love that final comment. And I think it's (laughs) absolutely true, right? I think, the conversation we've had today very much demonstrate there cannot be a one size fits all approach to your kind of geographical expansion and international strategy. So Kayla, thank you so much for coming on today. Really enjoyed that that topic and, and my pleasure. Interesting. My pleasure. I'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye. As a listener of ours, we're here to support you throughout 2021. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything that they can to support you. For all our listeners, ensure you're subscribed to our insider briefing. Sign up at edited.com, where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Kayla, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with all of our future episodes and we'd love it if you could tell your friends or family about us. And if you have any further questions, you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Goodbye.